This is Diana Cordy with Book Talk. My guest is psychologist Mark Schultz, co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. For over eight decades, this study has tracked the same individuals and their families, asking thousands of questions and taking hundreds of measurements, from brain scans to blood work with the goal of discovering what really makes for a good life. Mark is Zooming with me today from his home in Pennsylvania. Mark, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you, Diana. What is your definition of happy? Well, I borrow it from the research literature, which really focuses on two elements. One is that kind of momentary experience of joy and happiness that we're all familiar with, but it's a fading moment um, that it's not with us all the time we can't be happy all the time and then there's a kind of more durable sense of satisfaction with life or a sense of purpose with life and both of those things are what we mean when we talk about happiness chapter one first page you pose the question if you had to make one life choice right now to set yourself on the path to future health and happiness what would it be what do you get when you ask that? What's the answer? Is that, Yeah, so the answer is that it's good relationships keep us happier and healthier throughout our life. It's a simple message that comes from the 85 years of research from our study, as well as looking at hundreds and hundreds of other studies, not only from the United States, but all over the world. When you ask that question of different age groups, are the answers the same? Yeah, so people have ideas about what will make them happy that are often informed by the messages that we get from our media and our our culture. So young people in particular are focused on success and career achievement, to a certain extent on making money. And that's part of, I think, the messages that we're bombarded with. Uh, so the, the answer to that question depends partly on where you are in the lifespan and partly, I think, when you came of age and what's been emphasized in our culture. But we think that there are many ways that people get distracted from this basic idea that connections are so critical for us, which I think we all realize at some level, but we get distracted by mm-hmm. tales of the importance of money and fame and, and you know, just one more achievement to put on our resume. Why are life's challenges just as important as life's joys? Yeah, so the good life isn't only about happiness. It's really about leaning into life and leaning into relationships. And inevitably, relationships and life comes with challenges. And challenges with the right resources and the right connections allow us to grow um, we often find ourselves, you know, kind of um, raising our game to meet the challenges there. And that's how we grow and learn in our lives. So these participants in our study were born in the early 1900s. Um, many of the college participants, which was about a third of our sample, served in World War II. And this was an incredible challenge for them. They served in combat. They worried about their lives. Um, but they they met those challenges and they grew because of it. And part of the way that they grew was through their connections with their battlefield partners. They leaned on people in ways that they never imagined they could to survive. Their lives were at stake. So we can grow from challenges um, if we're able to lean in and particularly rely on connections that we have to navigate. In the book you write, your childhood is not your fate. Your natural disposition is not your fate. 
The neighborhood you grew up in is not your fate. What is? Yeah, so really important. I love that that line too. It's nice to hear someone read it. Um, so the the key idea here is that things like genes certainly shape our destiny. They're influential in terms of how we experience life and how we navigate life, but they're not all of our destiny. The best estimates, for example, when we talk about ha- happiness, suggest that genes may affect about fifty percent of our happiness. Um, and that's a sort of glass half empty and half full idea, right? It means yeah. that there's lots of stuff that we can do on. A daily basis. And that's the part that we can control. So that's the part that we highlight in the book, steps that people can take um, to make their life a more fulfilling and happy life. Uh, it's our actions that we take, the activities that we do on a daily basis, particularly the connections that we make and, and sort of cultivate in our life. How does your study compare with the happiness surveys that are taken around the world? Well, I think one of the things we did in our book, The Good Life, was to try and look at our data in comparison to all of the studies happening around the world. And the world happiness studies have attracted a lot of attention. And to me, the most interesting parts are trying to understand why it is that certain countries consistently report more happiness and other countries struggle more. And some of the findings have to do with things that we might think about as strong community or a strong trust in others. That's one of the things that comes out of the world happiness studies. Um, but this is comparing happiness across countries. And what we're doing is really looking at happiness and well-being across the entire lifespan with the 724 participants that we followed for these 85 years. So I would say they're complementary and good research, good science is always complementary. You want to look to more than one study to confirm that the signal that you're talking about, the central finding is replicated. That's what good science does. Is social media good or bad? For relationships? Yeah, that's a really challenging but really important question. So what I would say is it has both good aspects and more challenging aspects. The good aspects we saw very visibly during the pandemic. It's able to connect us in ways, not just social mm-hmm. media, but the new technologies in ways that um, we couldn't have been connected when we had to socially isolate. And many of us are distant from the families that we grew up from, even our schoolmates that we grew up from. So technologies that connect us, starting with telephones in the old days um, and the modern technologies that help us today, really important for maintaining connection. But I think there also are potential costs, and we're just beginning to understand them. So in the realm of social media, some people are using social media to look hard at how other people are living. So they're scanning their social media pages, and they end up comparing their own lives to these highly curated lives that other people are putting online. And it's natural to feel bad. We're not living that same exciting life that everyone else seems to live. So the trick is figuring out ways to use these technologies to connect. Uh, So using social media or using these technologies to connect. Wonderful. I think the technologies will continue to evolve. But another important idea is that some of these technologies probably dampen emotions. Research is is suggesting that's true in these connections. If you think about a texting exchange, the rhythm of it is very different than our rhythm of interaction in person. Um, So we need to think about the ways in which the technologies are shaping the very ways we communicate with others, particularly important for young people who are developing communication and interpersonal skills, figuring out how to solve problems. If most of their communication is happening with the new technologies, what kind of impact does that have on their ability to 
do these things in real time in intimate relationships that they may develop later in life. So those are the kinds of questions we're actually asking now with the 1,300 participants that are the children of the original participants in our study. How much of our happiness is under our control? So I I was citing a study before that suggests probably about 50% is under our control. People disagree about the exact figure, but it's going to be somewhere in that vicinity. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, you know, I've taught psychology for a long time now. Anytime we talk about genes, people tend to take one or another view and they kind of hold it rigidly. But anytime we know that there's any amount under our control, that's great news for us. It means that there are things that we could do. If it is 50%, there's a lot we could do in our lives to, on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis to make our life better and to flourish. And that's some of what we tried to talk about in our book. Is there anything we didn't cover here? that you'd like to add? I think one of the magical things about studying people across their entire lifetime from adolescence into late life, the end Mm -hmm. of their life is watching how people change. And we have one chapter in our book that's titled, it's never too late. Mm -hmm. That highlights uh, our research that shows that people change. Some of it is normative, meaning everyone changes in a similar way. And in some of it is quite remarkable stories of people, for example, who are quite miserable for their entire lives into their 60s and 70s. We tell the story of one man who was very isolated in a marriage that wasn't working for him. He got divorced late in life, lost his job, which he loved, but found a way to connect to others. And he did that by going to a gym and seeing people on a regular basis. And he eventually figured out that those people he was seeing every day, some of them shared his interest in old movies. So this was a person who began to thrive really for the first time in his life in his 70s, which is a remarkable story and one, I think, of hope. And that's one of the messages that we share in our book. Well, thank you. My guest is Mark Schultz co-author of The Good Life, published by Simon & Schuster. This is Diana Cordy with Book Talk. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Pleasure doing this with you.